It is great to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Jay said, my name is Robert Moore, and I'm up, I'm down from Christ Redeemer Church in Hanover, New Hampshire. And it's my privilege to get to be with you all today. There's some of you who I know from our little group up there. And I was here about two years ago, and last time I was here, uh, I was not married. And so my wife has, is here this morning, able to join us, and it's great to get to, to be with you all. So before I came up here, I asked Ademi uh, what I would be preaching on, and you all are going through a series in Ecclesiastes. I was like, great! What an uplifting book! Last time I was here, I preached on God's jealousy. Uh, so I guess I can't really complain. I kinda, it seems like I have a theme here. Um, but actually, I really enjoy going through these types of books, Judges, Ecclesiastes, some of the places in Scripture that tend to be a little bit harder for us to see God's grace and the truth of the gospel. Um, I think for me, part of it is because in a weird way, I think it feels easier to see the beauty of Christ when it's contrasted with things that seem kind of obviously wrong or hard to understand. And Ecclesiastes, I think, is a book that describes plenty of hard things that are hard to understand. Um, So where have we been so far? Or at least where have you all been and I was in the weeks leading up to coming out here to see y'all? Well, in chapter 1, we saw that all is vanity. Wisdom is vanity. Madness is vanity. In chapter 2, we see that pleasure is vanity. Wealth is vanity. Wisdom, though, might be better than madness, but both end up at the same result of death. See, hard work is vanity. Struggle is vanity. And then we get this nugget of goodness in the midst of it. In chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And yet we go on. In chapter 3, we see again this nugget of goodness. Be joyful and do good. Eat, drink, and take pleasure in the work God has given us to do. This is God's gift to mankind. Even justice and righteousness as pursuits for the sake of attaining just those two things is ultimately vain and corrupted. Rejoice in your work because that's all you have. From dust we were made and to dust we will return. And we continue in chapter 4, yet more vanity. For those who do evil and those who are afflicted by it, there is only vanity and a lack of comfort. And we see all these different wise sayings describing, among other things, the importance of having community, friends, and family. So this brings us to our passage for this morning. I want to go ahead and read that before we get started. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. 
pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Okay. Fear of God. Here we are. As we dive into this passage this morning, I want to give a little bit of an overview of where I want to head with things. So the first question I want to ask that I think this passage is really focused on is how should we come to the Lord? What should be our posture before him? What do we look like? What does the person who truly loves the Lord and seeks to know him, what does he look like? How should we come to the Lord? I think the next question there that makes a little bit of sense to ask is why don't we come as the preacher directs us if we indeed come before the Lord at all? And finally, what happens when we do come to the Lord, as our passage this morning indicates we should? So how should we come to the Lord? Why don't we? And what happens if we do? So how should we come to the Lord? Well, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. I think you can sum that up a little bit as come carefully. Coming before the Lord, the God of the universe, is an exposing, difficult thing to do. If it feels easy and comfortable and like you're just going through the motions, then chances are that you might be coming before him foolishly. Because when we come before the Lord, we come before someone who knows us fully, who knows everything and every twist and turn and corrupted motive in our hearts. And I'm willing to assume that most of you are like me or have been at some point. And when you go to spend time with the Lord, maybe outside of Sunday mornings, we sort of have this idealized view of like what that looks like. I mean, you've seen the Instagram posts with your, your coffee next to the Bible, with the beautiful sunrise in the background as you're enjoying your time with the Lord and just getting all these beautiful nuggets of truth out of his word. But we don't always see on, on social media all the other times that we should, uh, but, but maybe we, we don't really pay as much attention when we're in the middle of our year-long Bible reading plan and you come to that first set of genealogies and the Levitical law. Maybe you're hitting that same place in the Old Testament for the third time and you just are staring at this passage and it's just not clicking. And you just kind of zone out and you're like, okay, I'm, when am I supposed to be getting out of this again? It's hard for us to be aware that coming before God every time is a significant, meaningful moment. But I think in some sense this makes sense to us because if we talk about coming before God, if we think about it in terms of a relationship, I mean, think about marriage. When you're dating, it's somewhat easy, as long as you're less oblivious than I am, to remember that the time you have with the other person is special and significant. But my wife and I joke about how we will, we'll be sitting with each other on the couch watching a show or something like that, and then suddenly one of us will remember that the other person is there. 
And then, you know, she'll reach out and hug me. Or there's just all of a sudden this change in demeanor that comes across when you recognize that there's someone else there that loves you and knows you and cares about you and wants to spend time with you. But when, when you're dating, this, this is sort of kind of something that we, we're used to. Um, the, the time feels more special. But as you're in a relationship with someone for longer and longer and longer, it becomes easier to take that person for granted. And if that's true for, for us when we've been married seven months, I can only imagine how easy it can be to take your spouse for granted when you've been married a little longer. Or when you've known someone for a, a little bit longer. Now, I'm not saying we need to be perfectly aware of each other all the time. That is exhausting and impossible. I mean, let's be honest, we're not even aware of ourselves that much. But my point here is how much more so is this true of our relationship with the Lord? We have someone who is ever-present, ever-perfectly aware of us. Yet how often do we actually acknowledge him in our regular life, much less reach out to him with love and affection? We come before him even now on Sundays, and I'd be willing to bet in the course of me being up here, Jay talking, and Edwan doing the worship, most of us have thought about something that is completely unrelated to the service or the fact that we are worshiping the Lord. I know I have. I mean, I was sitting there. I don't, I don't know most of you. I was nervous to get up here and talk about God's word before you. This is a big thing. And yet, how vain is that thought? Here I am in God's house with his people, and I get distracted by how I'm going to be perceived in your eyes. I should be concerned about what that says about my heart and what I care about more than how God sees me. Fools act in vain, ignorant of their evil, because their sacrifices are all about them. They are utterly ignorant of God's presence in their lives. But we, God's people, are to come carefully, aware of the one who is ever aware of us and aware of our place before him. But the preacher continues, verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. We're not just to come carefully, but we are to come ready to listen. There is a danger in being quick to speak before God. And this passage calls to mind, uh, to me, James 3. And the importance of taming the tongue. In, verse, in James 3, verse 6, he says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. We should anticipate that even, even our prayers and desires that we present before God are twisted by sin and un unrighteousness. Now, by all means, be honest before God. In fact, that's the next command here. But we have to be careful. We can't pray simply as though we know what is ultimately best for us. Verse 3 is kind of odd. It's kind of hard for it to understand, I think. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The second half of that's a little easier, but a dream comes with much business. I think what he's talking about here 
is this idea that if we come to God with some golden, dreamy outcome for a situation that we want to see happen in our lives, we tend to do so with an action plan in mind. And with that comes this idea of all the different steps that God needs to fulfill to make it so that, so that we get this dream that we want. There's a lot of business we think that God needs to accomplish for us in order to make this happen. And in all that frantic desiring and wanting of something that we see as good for us, we lose our ability to hear God's voice. We lose our ability to hear God's response and we lose our ability to hear his word being spoken to us because our worship becomes about getting what we want rather than understanding what God's plan is, understanding how we fit within his goal, his design. But as I said, we shouldn't just come to God with some sort of religious perfection in mind either. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. We should come in truth, committing to the Lord fully with what we do. Now, I think this is another one where the language sometimes gets lost in how we talk to each other. We don't speak often of the vows that we make before each other, except maybe in marriage, baptism, births of our children, committing them to the Lord, maybe membership vows in a church. That language is a little more common for us, but with most people, we don't use vows very often. And I think particularly, at least among my generation, I've seen that the value of your word to someone else has been drastically diminished. I mean, the number of times I've heard someone say something like, oh, I swear, if blank happens or this person does blank, I'm going to blank. I'm going to do blank. And I think there's a mentality behind that that says that our word is not as important as it once used to be. Our word tends to mean very little, and we tend to not expect others to follow through on their word. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We could go into the problems with how social media affects our communication or how fear of missing out on better things in life leads us to go back on our word if we commit to something or any number of other things. But I think there's at least one universal reason for why people don't follow through on what they promise. And I think this is why the command that is being given here by this preacher to the people, I think, the, I think there's a reason for this that goes beyond just uh, him trying to help people understand that their word is meaningful. Because to this, this group of people, vows were incredibly important. And yet I think whether you're someone who lives by their word or someone who struggles to live by their word, The common reason for this command is that we don't have the power to make many of our promises happen. Whether our sinful nature leads us to go back on our word or something happens that we have no control over to make us not able to do something we said we would, we, we can barely fulfill our own promises. I mean, even the vows we make to each other in marriage, we tend to fail at. 
And I think this is the truth that the little proverb in verse 5 is getting at. Don't make promises you can't keep to the Lord because that is sin and vanity. And in some ways that assumes an equal partnership with God. That's saying, I can promise this to you because I have just as much power as you in this relationship. So we see a similar thing in, in Matthew 5 when Jesus is speaking. Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall, for, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It comes from this assumption of our ability to make things happen. But we don't have the capacity to follow through, especially when it comes to things relating to our own salvation, and yet we try to bargain with God. I mean, how many of you have ever done that thing where I promise to follow the Lord if, if you'll just do this for me? Lord, I know I haven't been reading your word as much as I should. I know I haven't been praying to you as much as I should. I know I haven't been living as you want me to live as much as I should. But if you'll just do this thing for me, if you'll just give me this, then I'm all yours. I mean, I've, I, I do this all the time and I don't even notice it sometimes. Even when I think about carving out time to spend with the Lord on my own, it becomes this, this game of, well, I'll do that as long as I can knock this out and this out and this out and this out. But I'll make time for the things that are important to me. But we bargain with God. And we convince ourselves that, that we, can, we can tell the truth when we promise to him, when we make vows of what we'll do for him. But with each of these commands, I think it's easy to see how, how quick we are to fail at them. And I think this is part of why the preacher ends this section of Ecclesiastes with his final command. Verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. We are to come carefully. We are to come ready to listen. We are to come in truth and we are to come in fear. And I don't think this is just about coming back to sins coming out of our tongue and trying to avoid that, that command that we were just talking about again. I think it's related, but the attitude here in this passage is different. And the key comes in these last two verses, but particularly in verse 7, where we see that we're not just to be aware of our place before God, but of God's power and authority to judge our many words and actions that we use to try to justify ourselves before him. 
These fools that present their vain sacrifices and use many words to sound religious, praying to God. All of this is an effort to justify themselves. And this is why, this is why the preacher points to the importance of fearing God. Because I think the most fundamental reason for why we do not come to the Lord as the preacher describes we should be in these verses is because we do not truly fear God. Why don't we come to him? Because we don't understand what it means to fear God. Or if we do, it seems like it's too hard, it's too impossible for us to accomplish. Because to fear God is not just to be terrified of him. To fear God is to revere and stand in awe of him. The goal that our passage seems to be pointing us to this morning is this, that we would worship God in his house with reverence and awe. But there are a lot of reasons we don't fear him. Maybe we don't think fearing him is really good. Maybe we think other things are more important to us. Other things are more worth fearing than God. But whatever the reason is, I think it reflects the fact that we don't understand what it really means to fear God. I think one of the most common ways we tend to think about fear of the Lord in church is that it's some sort of necessary evil that we have to do. Like we don't, we, uh, you hear this a lot in how people tend to talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament being two different gods, or God changes his character and becomes really graceful in the New Testament. It's the same God. But we tend to think that fearing the Lord, may, maybe it's something that leads us to, to repent and ask for the Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts. But after that, we're good. We don't need to fear the Lord anymore, right? We just need to love him. In fact, we know worry and fear. And we know that if you live in those things all the time in your life, they can literally shorten your lifespan. Our bodies are not meant to live in states of anxiety and fear. But so, and so if that's the case, then how can it be a good thing to fear the Lord? Well, to get at that, I think we have to look at what are the things we truly fear. Maybe you have a phobia, the kind of fear that kicks in just automatically when you see a spider or a clown or needles. I have been terrified of needles in my life. And I had, I had a roommate who was a diabetic, and I dreaded walking in when he was giving himself insulin because I just thought I was going to pass out. I also thought I wanted to be a doctor for a while. Uh, so I don't know how I thought that was going to happen. But if you have a phobia, you know that there is this logic eroding terror that tells you, no matter what it is, that this thing is going to hurt you, that it is going to make your life miserable, and you need to get away from it as quickly as possible. There's no logic there. And people could tell you that, and you could see that, but it's still present. And there are people, this might be you, who experience a fear of God this way. That when you really think about him up in heaven on his throne, there is an overriding, logic-eroding terror that makes you completely unable to think of anything else but his judgment, his holiness, his perfection, 
in comparison to your sinfulness. But fear of the Lord is not about pure terror. Fear of the Lord does not need, does not lead to a lack of being able to see anything else in a a moment of intense fear. That's not what the preacher is talking about here. And maybe this isn't how, how you think about the Lord. Maybe the type of fear you're more used to in life is less intense but more constant. The things that you, you feel anxiety and worry over. Do we have enough to pay rent, to pay insurance, to pay for school, to pay for meals, to pay for college, to pay for all the unexpected things that come up in life? Does my family love me? Do my friends care about me? Am I worth loving? Whatever it is, there's a common thread in our worry that, that, what we, that what we, we have to do something or say something to make us feel like we're enough. To make us be okay, we have to do something now to fix the situation that we're afraid of. And if we don't, whether it's in pieces or all at once, we feel like our life is going to come crashing down around us. But I think the truth about the fear of the Lord is that we have no promise that we're going to get everything we want in life. In fact, we may experience the loss and the pain and hurt from from the very things that we most fear other than the Lord. But the fear of the Lord leads to hope. A true fear of the Lord understands the fact that things are always going to turn out for the best for those who fear the true God. This is why our God is worth fearing, not just because he's powerful enough to judge you and me, but because he alone is powerful enough to be in control. And not only is he powerful and just, but he is loving and merciful. And this is what brings us to our final point this morning. What happens when we do come to the Lord as the preacher intended in true fear of God, recognizing that he alone is worthy of our fear? He alone is worthy of our awe and reverence. throughout Ecclesiastes, we see this recurring theme about the goodness of a life lived according to what God has directed us to do in life. He offers utter joy and satisfaction to those who follow him in a way that nothing else can. And Solomon has tried everything under the sun to get that satisfaction. And he has seen that God alone is capable of following through on the promise of satisfaction that he offers. But I think the reverse is just as true. Because just as God guarantees satisfaction for those who pursue him and follow him, he also guarantees dissatisfaction and vain toil for those who do not follow him. And he is just as capable of following through on that promise. That's why these things that lead us into terror or anxiety, 
worry, whatever it may be, there is a real understanding that those things can hurt us. This is part of this, this fact that God can follow through on the inverse of his good promise to his people. Is part of why the psalmist can pray so boldly and confidently that God will visit sorrow upon their enemies when they are hurting. Because there is a promise that judgment will come. The true fear of the Lord, yes, at first, will lead us to repentance. Because you cannot look on the holiness and, good and perfection of God without recognizing how inadequate we are in comparison. But if all we do is turn and look at God's incredible perfection and then look away in shame, we're just going to end up spinning back towards something else, whether it's the thing we turned away from or else just wandering off in some other aimless direction. If your repentance, if your experience of fearing the Lord is just about relieving some sense of guilt, and then going back to doing what you were doing before, you're just going to end up spiraling. But when you come to the Lord, as the preacher talks about here, when you come carefully, when you come ready to listen, you come humbly, you will see that true fear of the Lord comes not just when you see his, power, his perfect judgment, but when you see his perfect love as well. Yes, fear the Lord and repent, but fear the Lord in love and rejoice as well. John Bunyan, a Puritan writer, describes the proper attitude of one who, who fears the Lord to treat as he wrote as rejoicing with trembling. And I think that's such a good way to describe what fear of the Lord looks like. Because contrary to every other fear in life, which leads us to one of these negative sensations of terror or anxiety or worry or something that just feels wrong, fear of the Lord leads to rejoicing. And the reason we can rejoice is because, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, it is in a life lived fearing God that we find the satisfaction that we most deeply desire. And the reason for this is that our satisfaction is not something that just makes us into a, a pleasant, peaceful people who will never suffer. I think sometimes that's how the world looks at Christianity and sees, oh, the satisfaction they're going for, they just want to be sheeple. And while we are sheep, we're in need. It's, it's not a fear that comes in ignorance. It's not a satisfaction that can't withstand the realities of life. No, the satisfaction that the Lord promises his people is one that can endure every hardship that this sin-corrupted world and our own sin-corrupted hearts can throw at us no matter how traumatic, no matter how painful, no matter how just heart-wrenchingly awful. And this is true because we have a Savior who died so that God's wrath and judgment might be satisfied. Giving us the capacity to live lives, not toiling in the foolishness of some secular view of the good life or some religious mindset that seeks to earn salvation, 
but instead living lives under the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Solomon saw glimmers of this in those who love the Lord with all their being. But you and I get to see this truth in the lives of all of us, all of those around us who have had their hearts changed by the only God worth fearing at all. We have access to a satisfaction that stems from awe and wonder at a God who would turn his own wrath and judgment upon himself, upon his own son, so that his image bearers might be able to see the truth of their sin's ugliness displayed on the cross and God's beauty displayed in Christ's resurrection. So we are to come carefully, to come ready to listen, to come in truth, not in some vain belief in our own power. And we are to come in fear, rejoicing with trembling, In the Lord. That's not easy to do. In fact, most of us are going to fail at every step in this process at some point. And we're going to forget what it means to fear God. And when we do remember, we're sometimes going to remember some skewed view. We will continue to fear other things more than him or else equate a fear of God to terror or anxiety. We might constantly fear his hammer of justice, worrying he might be judging us and hating us from the shadows, or else forgetting about him entirely in light of things that we fear more than him instead. And all of these approaches are going to fall short of what Solomon means when he describes a fear of the Lord, this fear that is best described perhaps as awe and reverence at one who is powerful and just enough to judge us truly, yet loving and merciful enough to grant us overflowing grace. And it is through this grace directed towards us that we will find the capacity when we fail to come back to the Lord, to come carefully, to come ready to listen in truth, and in a true fear. Not perfectly. But we've been extended grace that we can come imperfectly seeking to look like this. To be a people who recognizes that we do not have to toil in vain, but can work instead in joy wherever God has placed us in life. Because our lives are gifts of grace. And so we are to live differently for the glory of someone other than ourselves. The only one who is worthy of our fear. So with that, would you join me as we pray to this good God? Heavenly Father, it is easy to look at the vanity, the... the, the sense of hopelessness that at times Solomon seems to feel in Ecclesiastes and wonder at our, at our own lives, Lord, at the vain things that we chase after. Lord, when we go to bed at night, anxious about the coming day, anxious about the coming weeks, years, months, 
feeling the pain of something that we, we feared would come to pass and finally did. Lord, it's in those aches and pains, the wounds that our sin-corrupted world inflicts upon us, that we inflict upon each other. Lord, it's in those moments that it is hardest to see you, to come to you, guarding our steps, ready to listen to your word. Because we see so much suffering and misery around us, Lord. We feel that reality. And yet, Father, we know that your son experienced that reality more fully and deeply than we can imagine. For God, when he took our, on our, the burden of our sins on that cross, he understood us more deeply than we can ever imagine. And Lord, he understood your punishment, your justice, in a way that we will never have to. Father, we thank you for that abundant, overflowing grace and mercy that you extended to us. Lord, we thank you for your Son who gave us the Holy Spirit in his absence. Lord, we thank you for the Counselor who can direct us when our hearts are confused. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in wisdom. Lord, that we would seek to live lives chasing after you. Lord, desiring to be in relationship with you above all not forgetting you as we are want to do, Lord, but instead remembering the one, the only one who is truly worth our fear, our awe and reverence, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to lift our hearts in joy as we sing to you now. It's your name I pray.